Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Destruction has a way of leaving a trail through history, not just in the stories we continue to tell, but also in the physical evidence we can uncover if we dig deep enough. For example, deep, deep below the streets of modern London, there's something called the Boudicca Destruction Layer. This small layer of red in the earth is a physical reminder of Queen Boudicca's spectacularly deadly revolt against the Roman Empire. Cities as old as London have plenty of layers. They're usually all that remains of the land's extensive past, from old Roman roads to long-lost defeated kings buried under parking lots. They've slowly been built up and become the London we know today. Unfortunately, many of those layers, most in fact, were created by fire. Fires were a common part of life, especially in a world before hydrants and organized fire departments. Instead, residents had to organize rapidly to take water from the nearest source, usually a well or a river, and form a bucket brigade to try and put the blaze out as quickly as possible. Sometimes they even succeeded before too much damage was done. London, like most old cities, was no stranger to fires. Boudicca and her revenge was just one of the first recorded examples. In the year 60 CE, she and her other tribe leaders banded together and burned cities like Londinium to the ground, creating her destruction layer of red-brown oxidized ash. London has been built and rebuilt several times over the centuries, often flourishing in between those destructive fires. But not even a century after Boudicca's revenge, Londinium was destroyed again. No one knows what caused the Hadriatic Fire, or really even when it happened. Experts estimate sometime after Emperor Hadrian's visit in the early 120s. London managed to stay intact for a few more centuries, although admittedly St. Paul's Cathedral seems to have had terrible luck burning down nine times before the next fire in 1135. The Pentecost Fire broke out near London Bridge, reportedly in the sheriff's home, and then spread out from there. One chronicler said St. Paul's burned to the ground again, but another disagrees. Given the building's history, I wouldn't be shocked if it had, though. The Great Pentecost Fire destroyed London Bridge, made of wood, of course, as well as the homes, ships, and other properties within two miles of the Thames. Despite the devastation of the blaze, though, this wasn't London's deadliest fire. That dubious honor happened years down the line. Like so many fires, the cause is unknown. We can speculate about the unattended ovens, dropped pipes, or careless trash fires until the cows come home, but no one knows how this great blaze began. Some people, though, suspect the weather. You see, it was July 10th, and England, like many other places in the North Atlantic, was going through a bit of a warm spell. The roller coaster of climate change means that we might be able to imagine what it was like. A hot day in July, maybe it was sunny and bright or rainy and muggy, although given what happened next, I'm inclined to think it was very, very dry. Someone would have taken up the call to warn the neighbors that a fire had broken out. From there, the news would have spread like, well, fire, pun intended. People would have scrambled for buckets, basins, and wash tubs to fill them and stand in line while others evacuated children, animals, and valuables. The fire started south of the River Thames in Suffolk, so maybe they used river water, but they probably used whatever they could get their hands on. 
Still, it was no use. Between July 10th and July 12th, they fought and fled from the fire as it burned through Suffolk's Cathedral, known as Our Lady of the Cannons or St. Mary Overy, then most of Borough High Street, a major street that connected the south bank of the Thames to London. And then, it spread to London Bridge. Now, the wind had picked up, carrying blazing cinders across the river to, you guessed it, wooden houses and their straw roofs near the northern end of the bridge. From there, the fire jumped to the city of London itself. As people fled the inferno from Suffolk, they came crashing into people running from the fire that had broken out on the northern side. They were trapped in the middle of two terrible fires, and the wooden shops and houses on the bridge became ticking time bombs. It was only a matter of time before those went up as well. Some people jumped into the river trying to save themselves, but either drowned or were crushed by boats trying to rescue those who were stranded. Some of the rescuers themselves were pulled in and crushed by desperate people trying to haul themselves on board. It was a terrible sight. The idea of putting wooden buildings on London Bridge had been the idea of King John, of Magna Carta and Robin Hood fame. Although at this point in time, the bridge itself was built of stone. Many of the survivors must have been wondering if they should have listened to the mayor when he strongly recommended using stone over wood as a building material. As you can tell by now, and the mention of King John of the Magna Carta, this fire was not the Great Fire of 1666 that everyone talks about today. All told, an initial estimate put the death toll for the Great Fire of 1212 at 3,000 people. Many historians disagree, as the population of London was just 50,000 people at the time, and that number of dead would have been devastating. The city, though, was soon rebuilt. As for London Bridge, it may not have fallen down this time, but its luck would eventually run out. After all, how could we sing the song if it didn't? Going to the eye doctor isn't the most fun experience, although it sure beats sitting in a dentist chair. At some point during your exam, the optometrist might squeeze a few drops of liquid into your eyes in order to dilate them. This allows the doctor to see your optic nerve and diagnose potential underlying conditions, such as cataracts or macular degeneration. Today's eye drops may be uncomfortable, but they're a lot better than the ones made hundreds of years ago. Because if you go back far enough, you might find that the people were putting very similar drops into their eyes to look more attractive, but at great cost. They were derived from a plant called belladonna, or literally translated, beautiful woman. Its full scientific name is Atropa belladonna, or atropine, but most people know it by its more common moniker, deadly nightshade. The genus Atropa comes from Greek mythology. It was named for one of the three fates, Atropos, who would cut the thread of life that had been measured and drawn by her other two sisters. And there was a reason for this name, given to the plant by Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus in the 1700s, because those who consumed it would find their own threads cut short. Records of its use go back as far as the 4th century BC, although Cleopatra was known to drop extracts of other nightshades into her eyes in order to dilate her pupils. But why? It's not like optometrist was a profession in ancient Egypt. Because belladonna extract helped make women more beautiful in their minds. At least, that's how it was marketed. History is riddled with instances of poisons being used in cosmetics. Ancient Egyptians and Greeks darkened their eyelashes with antimony, a toxic chemical element full of sulfur, lead, copper, and silver. 
Thallium acetate was used in the late 19th century as a cure for scalp ringworm, but it didn't actually kill the ringworm. It just caused the user to lose their hair so the ringworm would be easier to treat. Afterward, it was marketed as a body hair removal cream, which poisoned women who applied it to their skin. And of course, arsenic was incorporated into everything, from makeup to edible wafers, as recently as the 1890s. Belladonna drops did back then what they do now. They dilate pupils. The resulting effect is a glassy look in the woman's eye, making them appear lustrous and hopefully desirable. They were quite popular in the Renaissance-era Italy, as a woman's eyes were believed to be the most beautiful part of her body. In fact, the 16th-century painting Woman with a Mirror by the artist Titian was believed to depict a woman with big dark eyes dilated by belladonna. Though, in order to achieve such an effect, the plant extract used did do something harsh to the eyes. For one, they paralyzed the nerve endings, which worked well for pain relief and stopping bad coughs in asthmatics. But if someone dropped too much into their eyes, or, or worse, ingested a significant amount of it, other symptoms would start to appear. Dry mouth, an increase in body temperature, excitement, and an inability to swallow were just some of the side effects that doctors saw as a result of atropine poisoning. Long-term use of belladonna drops had also been known to cause blindness. Poisoners have seen belladonna, or deadly nightshade, as a tool in their arsenal as well. In 1994, an Edinburgh biologist named Paul Augeter was convicted of attempted murder after dosing his wife's tonic water, along with a dozen other bottles in a local supermarket, with the toxic chemical. The good news is that today, optometrists use an alternative to belladonna when dilating their patients' pupils, especially where children are concerned. But the plant is still incorporated into a variety of medicinal products, including eye drops, just a much more reasonable level than before. Because a doctor doesn't care if your eyes are sultry or seductive. They just want to see if you can see. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.